Now, isn't it wonderful, beloved, how rich and full the Bible is? What a storehouse, what a storehouse of riches. When I saw the program and saw what my assigned topic was, my first thought was, dear, I've written four volumes on the book of Acts. And that itself means that I certainly tried to be as thorough and as complete as I possibly could. But you know, it still is true that again and again and again and again, since writing those four volumes, I've said to myself, oh, I should have gotten this into it, (laughs) or I should have gotten that into it. And I was sitting in the chair in my study when I first got a copy of the announcement or the uh, program as Brother uh, Wynne Johnson sent them to us. Somebody brought one up and I looked at it and those were the first thoughts came to my mind. And then I turned around in my chair and I looked up and there in my library was a book that I've had since I was 15 years old, somewhere around there. The Life and Epistles of St. Paul, that great masterpiece by Coney Baron Housen. Housen is really the main writer in that book. And uh, that's an old volume. When I was a kid, that was, that was uh, many years ago. You know that. And uh, I looked into it, and already in that early edition, there were several appendixes. He had thought, oh, I should have gotten this in, and the next publication or the next printing, I'll get it in. And there were several already. And then I looked downstairs at the later editions, and there's a good number of appendixes in. I should have gotten this in. Then next to Life and Epistles of St. Paul, I stood up to see what those books were. They were smaller, smaller print too, but I looked and, oh, there are four more books by... Housen, Dean Housen, and what do you think they were on? All on the Apostle Paul, the metaphors of St. Paul, the companions of St. Paul, the character of St. Paul, uh, scenes in the life of St. Paul, another great big one. Oh, and I'm sure that since then he thought of other things that he wished he had written and gotten in. So it was not with any spirit of disappointment at all that I found I had this topic, and I tell you, as I went into it, I was more and more blessed, and I just pray that the Lord will help me now to bring you the blessing that came to my own heart as I went into this subject. Acts 28, verse 22, please. Acts 28, verse 22. The latter part of the verse. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. This was what the Jews at Rome said to the Apostle Paul about those who believed the message that he proclaimed. Everywhere this is spoken against. Times haven't changed much, have they? Not in that respect. I read uh, sometime, in fact, some time ago I wrote an article 
on the Antinocene fathers, those who lived prior to the, the Nicene, the publishing of the Nicene Creed. And right in there you find some of the fathers. Why are they making so much of Paul? Is he greater than Peter? Is he greater than Christ? We've heard the same thing, haven't we? Everywhere this is spoken against, people write me and they say, Mr. Sam, this is so clear, so baby simple. How is it that the great men of the, uh, in, of the gospel can't see it? Well, sometimes they can't, of course, always with some personal failure causing it. But sometimes also they don't want to let themselves see it. I know many of them don't want to get within a ten-foot pole's reach of us. They say, they've said that about Brother Johnson, they've said it about other pastors here. Uh, somebody will come to me and say, our pastor said he just wishes he could have a talk with you. He feels you're so wrong about this. I say, oh, I would love to have a talk with him. Can we set a date? And they say, well, I'll ask him. So I said, well, let's set a tentative date. Tell him next Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. I have all three nights open. Maybe you could make one of those. Those dates are never made, never made. It's always the same, always the same. They, oh, they want so to show us where we're wrong. They know they can't show us where we're wrong. It's that plain and that simple. That Paul is our apostle for today and that his message is ours for today. I had a black brother come in, a dear friend of ours, comes in every once in a while. He works hard on the south side of Chicago. He said, Mr. Stam, why is it? Oh, and he buys books, 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 and the beer ones to give to the pastors, and he talks with them and, and, and reasons with them. He said, Mr. Stam, why is it they can't see it? I, it's so simple to me. Why can't they see it? I said, listen, if you think that's a black problem, it's the same with the white. <laughs> it's, that's a spiritual problem. That's not a racial problem. I get letters from India. I get letters from Europe. Everywhere this thing is spoken against, thank God, many are being blessed by it, too. We got a call the other day that really thrilled us. The other day, this is almost a month ago, I guess, time goes. Call from London, England. We've gotten them from about every state. But a call from London, England. A woman uh, had gone on a trip to Israel and there had received a copy of Things That Differ. She had been just, re her thinking was revolutionized by it. She called up from London, England and said, I just wanted you to know before any more time passes how blessed I was to get that book and to, to see the simple solution to so many problems. Well, thank the Lord. You'd say, why don't they accept it and rejoice in it? Why do they oppose it? Why do they fight it? We're glorifying Christ. We're as strong on the fundamentals as any fundamentalist can be. Why? We give Christ all the glory. Why do they fight it? But they do. And as I thought this over, I thought of the record of the book of Acts and so many cases in which this thing has been spoken against and Paul was, uh, was uh, hated and persecuted. And I asked myself, humanly speaking, why? We know, of course, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. It's the devil and his host, basically. But we are, we are responsible as human beings, every one of us. So humanly speaking, why? Why is this thing spoken against? And as I read through the book of Acts again, I 
it seems to me that there is no better uh, demonstration or example of this than we find in this chapter about the great uproar at Ephesus. Let's turn to it. You know where it is. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. That was the history of Paul's saved life, wasn't it? No small stir. He went from one riot into another. No small stir about that way. Now, that doesn't mean in that area. About that way means about the way of salvation that Paul was preaching. No small stir about it. And I, as I read it again, I said, Oh, Lord, that I could make a stir or be used of God to make a stir like that. That we of the Berean Bible Fellowship could be used to stir things up for him and for the wonderful truth of the grace of God. What caused this stir? Let's start there. Let's start with Paul's side first, the side of right. Well, let's see, what was his way of, what was his manner of approach? What was his way of working and preaching? Uh, Did he have some agitators and uh, activists and revolutionaries to help him stir things up? You know he didn't. Did he start any parades or marches or petitions or anything of that kind? You know he didn't. Never started a political thing or a social thing in his life. That is, after he was saved, certainly. Did he, uh, was there a lot of money spent on promotion and half a million dollars on advertising, let's do it big? No, he did it big, but not that way. Let's see how he did it. He tells himself. Now, in the 20th chapter, he's looking back. Let's go to chapter 20, uh, verse 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. This is after the uproar, some time after he had returned. He called for the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know, he often uses that phraseology. He looks into their eyes, as it were. He looks into their conscience and says, You know this. You know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, consistently, Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and testings which fell me, which befell me by the lying of weight uh, in weight of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you and have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, 
not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That's all. That's the secret of his tremendous power. No big... Organ- he believed in organization, but it was a certain kind of organization. It wasn't talking up how big it was. It was big because of its genuineness. It was big because of the spiritual power behind it. It was big because it was a man who in simplicity and godliness and humility and even in tears wasn't too big to go from house to house as well as to preach publicly and persuade and teach and show men the truth. He testified the good news of the grace of God. Let me read to you this little statement of his in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Though there are many along this line, this is so to the point. He says in verse 12, Our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to yours. Now, in other words, we have here a simple man bearing witness of what Christ had shown to him and revealed to him. He was doing just what the Lord told him to do and doing it humbly. Now this doesn't mean that he wasn't dead in earnest. The very fact that he was so simple and humble and sincere about it, and this is not his word, this is Luke's record of what he said, but it is inspired of God, let me remind you. This is the truth of God about it. But let's look, please, at the 19th chapter, verses 8 and 9. Now we're coming to the story of the great uproar in Ephesus. Acts 19, verses 8 and 9. Here we begin with the Jew, the Jews in a synagogue. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly, by the space of three months disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, please, some of you here, don't get that wrong. It doesn't say that he offered the earthly establishment of the kingdom of God. He would naturally tell them what had happened to the kingdom of God. He'd tell them how its earthly establishment was offered and was rejected. And now God saved him the chief of sinners, and sent him forth with the good news of the grace of God. But notice these words, speaking boldly, disputing, persuading. 
I've heard it said to me so often till I'm weary of it. Can't you just state your case and leave it at that? <laughs> Can't you just tell them the truth and you don't have to make them believe it. Oh, I know we can't make them believe it, and we know that. But this is not a matter of mere opinions, and there may be a thousand different opinions. This is the truth that will lead you to heaven against a lie that will take you to hell in the lake of fire. And Paul was concerned about it and concerned about what these people believed. So he disputed with them, he persuaded them, but, verse 9 says, When divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one tyrannus. Let me say this again when I talk about persuading and disputing. If anything is clear from the scripture record, it is this, that Paul was not a man with a chip on his shoulder. He was most tactful, most thoughtful, most careful about his choice of words even. He didn't have a chip on his shoulder. He sought to persuade them, as I've said, because it was a matter of life and death. If you dispute for that reason, if you and I persuade men for that reason, we'll be in the will of God. Otherwise, we will not. This continued, he says, it says, by the space of two years. What was the result? Everybody was talking. They were all buzzing about this man in the school of Tyrannus and his arguments and the things he was saying about God and Christ and salvation and the law and grace and so on so that all those who dwell in Asia, that is Asia, the province in Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, turn, look down, please, at the 18th verse. And many believed and came and confessed and showed their deeds. Now, in between, I can't take all that time, but in between, we read that Paul did special miracles. Miracles greater than Peter had done. God was giving him the signs of an apostle. Not only that, he was showing him that he was showing them that he was superseding Peter. God now made him his special apostle. But the signs that he wrought were secondary. Even those marvelous signs were secondary. It's the message. That takes first place in this whole, whole section. Many believed and came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men and counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. What it had been preaching was gaining ground. It was prevailing. And did you notice, first he mentions, or Luke mentions, the common people that were being saved. They came, and they confessed, 
and they showed their deeds. They were truly saved. But then he goes to the leaders of occultism in Ephesus and that area. It had to be the leaders, notice, many of them which used curious arts. There were the necromancers and the magic, just as we have them right on TV and the radio today. The astrologers and the, and the mediums and the exorcists, there they were. Many of them that used curious arts brought their books together. It has to be the leaders, those who used these arts, and they brought these books. Now, everybody didn't have books in those days. Very, very few people had any books. But these were the leaders, those that were being saved, and they brought their books and burned them before all men, and they counted the price and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. What did this? Had Paul started some kind of an organized movement? Let's all bring our books now and burn them here. No evidence of that. In fact, it's quite evident from the record as you read it that it was a spontaneous thing. These leaders of the occult were being saved. And so great was the transformation in their lives that they brought their books of, of, uh, with all this about astrology and all the other arts. They brought them and they burned them. They gave up their very positions. We just read, no small stir, who might put here, no small price. <laughs> they paid a big price, and I must say this. There are so many that are not willing to pay any price for what they believe, but thank God there are also those who are willing to pay a price, and some who have been willing to pay big prices, not to get what they've learned, but because of what they've learned. They've found the wonderful grace of God, and I tell you sometimes, Virginia knows that, and any others here, Russ, and those who are working with us at BBS, and I'm sure the same is at these other organizations, Buffalo and Denver, you're almost moved to tears when you see what some people are doing to get the message of the grace of God out to others. Oh, I thank God for them. I know people who are not here tonight. People who are not here tonight won't be here at this conference. You know why? They need the money in order to keep getting this message out. They've been giving and giving and giving until it hurts, and then they're right. We're sorry, but we'll have to cut down a little on this. And then they don't cut down anyway. <laughs> they keep going and you say, how do they do it? How do they do it? And there are many like that. Thank God they're increasing as these dark days are upon us and the need is so great. Well, get this then. What started this stir? Well, after this ended, Paul thought, oh, that's great. Look at the victory we've had here. These men came themselves and burned their own books. 50,000 pieces of silver works, uh, silver's worth. And after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit. He was going to Macedonia, Cain, and Jerusalem, and then he must see Rome, and so on. He made preparations. Ah, but something happened. There was no small stir. <laughs> what started it? Agitators? Marches? Petitions? Nothing like that. Nothing like it. People were being saved. Their lives were being revolutionized as they heard about the 
pure, wonderful grace of God for salvation and for our lives. Well, let's go on here in this same passage, no small stir. We've seen just in a limited way, I've just given you the clue now, on Paul's side, what started it? Did he contrive to start this big uproar, this uprising? No, no, a surprise to him when it happened, I'm sure. On his side, what did it? A faithful preaching of the word in humility and sincerity and in godliness. But on their side, what started? You'd say, well, why didn't they rejoice? Why weren't they all happy and said, oh, how wonderful. Let's put this as headlines in our newspapers. The grace of God extended for another day and so on, you know. Why didn't they write this up in the papers in colored ink and say how wonderful it was? But they didn't. That is, the majority didn't. You know the reason? Look at verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. Let's stop right there. No small star, no small gain. Now you've got the clue. <laughs> no small stir. But there was opposition, no small gain. This craftsman was making big gain, bringing big gain to the other craftsmen, whom he called together with a workman of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. He could have finished his speech right there because that was the whole of it. That was it. Vested interest. Oh, he went on with a little hypocrisy, you know. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus. Now watch how he gives Paul. Uh, he bears witness. He confirms what I said about Paul. Ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, Paul, this Paul, hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods that are made with hands. Had Paul started something, started a group picketing these idol factories where they made the shrines? Did he have them marching false gods? They're making false... No, no. It only hurt them indirectly. He wasn't after them. He was after people seeing the truth. And he explained to them how these can't be gods. You made it yourself, for people are making it. They're whittling away the wood. They're cutting away the stone or the metal. They'd be no gods. He says they're teaching them that. Now then, so that not only is this our craft in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. 
Beloved, I believe with all my heart, not only on the ground of a story like this and many other similar examples, not always to do with money, but other interests, I believe that, humanly speaking, the greatest enemy against the truth is vested interests. Vested interests. I had a young lad years ago in the car with me. He said, Brother Stan, if this is true, he was a young minister, if this is true, how is it that the Lord hasn't revealed it to Dr. So-and-so? Now, we both know him personally. He's a godly man. He's sincere. He's earnest. And if he saw it, he would certainly say so. I said, I'll tell you what I'd do. Would you mind if we wait till we get back to the Berean Bible Society and I'll give you the answer to that question? No, I said, that's all right. He didn't know why. We went back and I said nothing to him further about it. I just took him to the file. I opened my file to that man's name. I took a letter in which he said, I believe exactly as you do on this subject, but this is confidential. Confidential, please. And he told me because of relatives and so on, don't tell anybody else I believe it. I said, do you see? He does believe it. And in this case, I just could not keep this confidential. I later wrote something warning them that I will keep no such things confidential. If you have a, if there's a matter of faith and you believe it, I'm not going to keep a secret for you and help people to think that you don't believe what you do believe. This young man was flabbergasted. I could have shown him others, and I could show him many now. A letter from a, this happened to be a Methodist, I'm not hitting a Methodist, could be Presbyterian, Baptist, Reformed, Christian, Reformed, Episcopalian, anything. But this is a Methodist minister. He wrote me, Dear Brother, what a blessing I've gotten out of your writings, and I believe a hundred percent as you do. And I would come out for it openly, except that I have three daughters to put through college. That's true. As I stand here before God, we have many letters of that type. Reasons why they can't come out. If we, one brother said here just yesterday, if we had all the secret grace believers with us, this ground could never hold them. <laughs> Or if this message became popular overnight, these grounds could never hold the preachers that would say, I've seen that for years. I believed it all the time, you see. But vested interests are keeping them from doing it. A good, large church, a pension, the things that they've written, human pride, something that is valuable to me above God. Now think of the first law of the Ten Commandments. I shall have no other God before me. Here it was this big business they had. This was important to them. They said, oh, no, this, this can't be. He's turning away people from Diana. That's a terrible thing, especially since it is hurting our finances. Don't you think many Christians aren't that way? In a more subtle way, but it's the same thing. Now then, and when they heard these things, what things? Two things. Money and religion. Diana and, the, and their craft. When they heard these things, they were full of wrath. Now this is the, the uh, craftsman yet, it's not the public. 
They were filled with wrath, and they cried out, saying, Great is Diane of the Ephesians. What they really meant, those hypocrites, what they really meant is, let's do away with that Paul. Don't let's lose our craft because of him, <laughs> you see. But they said, Great is Diana. How hypocritical religion can make us. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, verse 29, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. Come on, let's make something of this. And they took these two and rushed into the theater with them. And when Paul, Paul wanted to be with his friends, he wanted to be right there in the fight. Paul would have entered in with him, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> he very well might have been killed had he gone in, but they wouldn't let him. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, these are called the Asiarchs in the original. These were men who were highly respected and generally the judges, at least over the game. And certain of the Asiarchs, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. We won a court battle years ago with the post office because we had a man in the post office, I can tell you this now, it's so long ago, a man high up in the biggest post office in the world who was our friend. He was a Roman Catholic. He was a veteran, he's dead now, a veteran in post office work, but somehow he respected us, that's all. He'd call me on the phone and say, I haven't seen you for quite a while now, and I know what he meant. He didn't dare talk over the phone. I said, okay, I'll come in sometime. I'd go see him the next day. <laughs> He'd say, don't you give up this fight, because there's no question about it. You have the right to this second-class fight. And uh, finally, it got to Washington. And the Washington judge called me aside and he said, Are you the defendant in this case? I said, Well, the Berean Bible Society is and I'm its president. He said, Well, it's almost unbelievable, but this is how the judiciary often is today. And I don't mean to run them down. I'm just telling them back. And I want to show how to the glory of God these things happen. He said, I think you ought to know that I hate religion. I was amazed. I said, well, I, in, as a matter of fact, I hate religion too. <laughs> I said, uh, I think religion is empty and hollow, nothing in it. Well, he said, you're a fundamentalist, aren't you? I said, well, people have different ideas of fundamentalism, but I believe in the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Yes, in that case, I'm a fundamentalist. He said, harumph, and he, he walked off. Oh, and I was so discouraged. And I called up one preacher, every preacher I knew in the Chicago area, and said, please pray. I don't know, we, we fought this thing for almost three and a half years, and here comes a judge in Washington, and he says something like that. And we got a lot of churches praying for us, and do you know what? This is the fastest ruling we got in the whole battle. In two weeks, a 40-page ruling in our favor. <laughs> we want it. The same man that had said, I hate religion, 
ruled for us. And I think you can understand such things too, but above it all, God is on the throne. But here were these Asiarchs, and they, they were his friends, and they sent to him, uh, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. So the thing went on. Verse 32, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, and the more, and the, the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Brother Bergener showed us the other night the word assembly here is a simple word for church, ecclesia. And uh, this ecclesia is pretty much like the church, the, even the body of Christ, isn't it? How many good fundamentalist ministers there are and their congregations. But they're confused. The more part don't know wherefore they've come together. Ask them, uh, what, what, what are you coming to church for? What do you do your work here in general in this testimony? Well, we're trying to carry out the Great Commission. Oh, you believe in, you preach salvation through water baptism? People have to be baptized? Oh, no, 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 Brother Stan. We don't believe that baptism has a thing to do with salvation, but the Great Commission says so. Do you... Uh, speak with tongues and prophesy and pick up serpents and drink poison doesn't hurt you oh no no the, the days for miracles have passed we understand that but the great commission says you should do it <laughs> you know and so you could go on they're confused they has the church ever been more confused than it is today oh bless them i'm so grateful that most of them preach more pauline truth than they understand more pauline truth they preach salvation by grace through faith they preach salvation by gates through faith plus nothing. And then they'll baptize somebody at night. Now, how in the world can that be, you know? Well, anyway, this was, a, this was the great mob there, that assembly. They didn't know wherefore they had come together. They didn't know what it was all about, and that's generally so in riots. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with a hand and would have made his, what's that word? Read, what does it say there? Defense? Are you sure? Look at it again. What does that say? Made his defense? Could it be that a Jew was going to say, don't blame us. <laughs> it's those Christians, not us. Weren't the Jews at least supposed to be as much as against idolatry as the Christians? In this, shouldn't they have been standing with Paul? But to get this Jew, and he's going to make his defense, but when they saw that he was a Jew, they start to cry, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And this time, they kept it up for two hours. Two hours, they cried, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I can't help but believe. In fact, I, I'm not going to force it on you, but I think if you dig as I do just a little, you'll be as sure as I feel I am sure that this Alexander was none other than the one spoken of in 2 Timothy 4.14, where Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. And in the next verse he says, You watch out for him too, Timothy. That was because Timothy was in Ephesus, you see. And this was 
one of those of like craft. Remember, those were the ones who had been called together. And they howled him down, and Alexander never had a chance to say anything. And then enters the, the mayor of the town, I'll, I'll call him that loosely, the town's clerk. Different commentaries make that a different position. Evidently, it was the head man of the town, or the, head, the acting head man, whoever was there. When the town's clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? This worshiper, it's a very special word. It means a temple sweeper. Oh, they worship and they keep that temple tied in clean, all in her honor. Who doesn't know that we are the sextons, the the temple sweepers of the goddess Diana, whose image and of the image that fell down from heaven. Sometimes I don't understand other commentators. I guess they wouldn't understand me. But I wonder why they have a big argument about whether it was just a bust of Diana. She was the many-breasted woman that spoke of, oh, sex and fertility. That had to come into it again, just like today. Some say it was just a bust. Some say it was a whole image. Can you tell me what the difference is there or what the significance? At any rate, this came down from Jupiter. Jupiter, the highest god of all, the farthest out in the heavens, had thrown down or, or, or cast down this statue of Diana. And it had fallen unharmed there at Ephesus and now graced the temple of the Ephesians, the shrine to Diana. He says, who doesn't know that? Well, I didn't know it, did you? <laughs> Do you see what superstition goes with the occult? As those of you who don't live in the Chicago area can't quite see what we see. If I had children, I, I'd think twice about having a TV, but I don't. And I have a chance to look for those things, and I listen. I want to know, because this is an important thing. It's really coming today. You know what I heard the other night? I tell you, it is really something. The marvelous miracles they can do and that are done through them. This man says, I don't claim any glory for myself. But I'll tell you, this is honestly what happened. I felt something hard in my mouth. So I just spit it out into my hand. And you know what it was? It looked like half, a, half of a tie clasp. Now he said, there were three of us standing there. And the other said, isn't that strange? I have the other half to that. They just come from different cities. He said, uh, I have the other half to that. I found it and I wondered what in the world, how could there be a half a tie class that way? Just an arrow cut in half. And the third man said, say, I lost that pin way back in Detroit. Isn't that a marvelous miracle? Isn't it? How many people that helped and how people would be blessed by it. You'd think they were blessed there on TV. Oh, did that really happen? Yes, and we have witnesses. Oh, how wonderful. They found a half a typhon in his mouth. Isn't that just great? <laughs> well, that's what this is like. Something fell down from it. Do you believe that? What any sensible men, you know what? Doubtless happened. That was so old. <laughs> that thing that they couldn't tell anymore, and a, and a mist started around it. I come from the city of Paris. It is now 9 o'clock, and I should be through in 5 or 7 minutes, okay? Raise your hand if it's okay. Oh, thank you. Well, 
I come to the city of Patterson, New Jersey, and uh, there was a little Roman Catholic church there, and if any Roman Catholics here, my dear friends, I love you. I don't say this unkindly. These are, these are, there are so many of these things happen in the Roman Catholic church, and perhaps you'll recognize it as the kind of thing that does happen. There was this little church, very poor, and a poor priest labored there, and there was a change, a switch. They got another one. Do you know what he found? They were breaking open the walls. They were going to make some renovations there, and they found the statue of Jesus, the one with the open heart. Perhaps you've seen it. And the heart was actually bleeding. And they, he got a witness. And the two of them swore to it. And it, the papers were filled. And they started a novena to uh, St. Jude. And the lines up, they were lined up to get in that church every day to say their novenas to St. Jude. And uh, they put their thanks for answered prayers from St. Jude in the papers every day. And the next thing is the money came rolling up. Now it's a good-sized church, a very large one in the city of Patterson. That, forgive me, my dear friend, if you're a Roman Catholic, that is the superstition that goes with idolatry. That is the superstition that goes with idolatry. This statue fell down from heaven and so on. But anyway, I want you to notice now that even though this mayor, we'll call him, was a darkened pagan he was still a just ruler and we had better thank God for any just government he gives us look what it says here he says uh, in the 38th verse wherefore oh wait a minute 37th verse seeing then 36 that these things cannot be spoken against he ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches or blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any, the law is open. They're deputies. They're lawyers and judges. Let them in plead one another. But if ye, you listeners, inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for this day's uproar, where, uh, whereby we may give an account of this day's concourse. We'd better be careful. These men have done nothing. They've only been preaching. They've been saying things that they believe, but they haven't, they haven't hurt you. They haven't done anything to these craftsmen. Well, how grateful we should be, beloved, for the power of lawful government and any who dispense it rightly and justly. And how God was in it. For now Paul could leave. He had been defended by uh, men respected the Asiarch. They were his friends in this whole thing. The mayor of the city defends him and Paul can leave and feel that the position of the church has been greatly enhanced. 
The thought in closing, let God have his way in this wicked day. Don't let's get panicky and say, do this or do that. God is going to have his way. He's still on the throne. He's still going to work things out for us. At uh, Philippi, remember how the work was enhanced when they threw Paul in jail, back bleeding. But the next morning, the judges said, okay, you can go, or the rulers, you can go. Paul said, oh, no, no, no. They threw us in jail uncondemned, being Romans, and now they're going to cast us out privately? Nothing doing. Let them come themselves and take us out. They had to apologize and lead them out. What prestige, what what a position that gave the church of Philippi. At Corinth, why the Jews were so hated there that when they brought a, a Sosthenes, the, the ruler and his, and his friends, brought a complaint against Paul, why the Gentiles took him and soundly beat him up before the, the judge's message. The judge turned the other way. Dr. Schofield is called him the careless Galio. I think he was careless. He was with Paul. <laughs> You see, and Paul went away again in Corinth. Ah, oh, how it established the church. And beloved, I believe it with all my heart. So with the church at Ephesus too. God, by his grace, if we will just do what Paul did, never mind all the gimmicks, never mind the let's do it bigger and so on, with godly sincerity and humility, but with all the earnestness that is in us, let us get out to others. Let us willing to be willing to pay the big price and throw over, throw aside the no small gain. Let us be willing as humble servants of God and bond slaves of Christ to make known this wonderful message of grace. And he, the same God, has wrought such mighty works there, will do it again. And God is doing it already in great measure, but he will do it in greater measure if we are truly consecrated to him. May he grant it. Thank you.